All right, so good morning again, and uh, it's so good to be together again this morning. Um, my name is Nick, if we haven't met before, and um, it's my pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, so uh, before we get started this morning, I have some uh, news to share with you. Pastor David was going to be preaching today, but unfortunately, um, a couple days ago, his dad took a fall and up in Idaho, and um, he passed away. And um, he's, he's been fighting some significant health, he's had significant health challenges um, over the past year or two. And, um, and this, uh, this happened in the midst of that. Um, but so David wanted to share something with you. Um, said, you might be aware that my dad was involved in an accident with the three-wheel e-bike he used to get around his property. He fell off and unfortunately sustained extensive injuries that resulted in his death on Saturday afternoon. David, his mom, and sisters were all able to be by his side as he went from this side of eternity to the next. There is, much, there is much grief, but also much gratitude to God for his 87 years of life and 65 years of marriage. Thank you for your prayers for David and his family. Please continue to pray for David and his sisters as they help their mom adjust to their new normal. So uh, we're going to take a moment and pray together, uh, lift them up this morning, and uh, uh, if you pray with me, it would be great. Jesus. This morning, we come to you with heavy hearts for, um, for David and the Cook family, um, David, his sisters, his mom, um, all of, of the grandkids, um, everyone else who, who knew and loved Richard. God, we, we just thank you so much for his life that he lived, uh, the great father that he was, the great husband that he was, and, and the great follower of you that he was. Um, God, we thank you for the hope that we have, that we don't grieve as, as people without hope, but that we grieve um, knowing that one day we'll get to see him again, that his, his family will be reunited, um, and, and God, that we have eternity to look forward to. Thank you that, God, for every one of us who places our faith and, and hope and trust in you, that, that we have that, that eternity to look forward to. And, and Lord, we just, again, lift up uh, the Cook family and, and ask that your presence would surround them, uh, that your grace and your peace, uh, your comfort would be, be over them and in them, and that you would surround them with people to care for them, uh, to bring them the things that they need, but also to allow them space uh, to be together, uh, to remember uh, their husband, their father, their grandfather well, and to be able to celebrate his life, uh, but also grieve um, his passing. So, God, we just thank you so much that you don't leave us alone in the midst of difficult times, but that you are with us, that you are Emmanuel. And, and God, we, we thank you and, 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 and we praise you for that in the midst of uh, the Cook family's um, loss this weekend. Praise things in your name. Amen. So, losing loved ones, man, it's, it's, death is bitter. It, it's this time when it's just... It's so hard. Your heart breaks. I, I think about, um, we had a pretty large extended family when I was growing up. And so from the time I can remember, I, I remember going to funerals, going to memorial services. Most of, most of our family was Catholic, so they, they were multiple day-long events in, uh, in that world. And uh, you would come together for, um, you know, at least a two-day celebration of life and um, do multiple things together. But I remember 
I remember most clearly, uh, more recently, is when uh, my wife's grandfather passed away. Um, and it was about five years ago. And he um, passed away in February. And uh, Megan and I got to drive up. She found out that he was in the hospital and that it looked pretty bleak, pre pretty grim. And so we jumped in the car and we drove up um, to Spokane and picked up her sister who lives near Seattle on the way and then cut over. Um, and we arrived just in time. We were there for the last couple hours of his life. And um, I remember that next week as we, uh, Megan's family gathered together and I got to participate in it. Um, and just remembering her grandfather's life and getting to share stories and, and laugh together, cry together, and enjoy um, a life that had been really well lived. And, and enjoy remembering a man who had poured himself out for, for, for those around him and had, had cared for people and loved people really well, who had an incredible testimony. He, he, he had come to faith as an adult, like I think in his uh, 40s or 50s, um, once his kids were all grown up, adults as well. And um, so just this incredible story of transformation within his life. And like I said, death can be bitter, but the hope that we have in Jesus is sweet. Um, and it's, it's something that sustains us. Um, as we as we move forward in, in a new reality without the one that we lost, the person that we lost. So, um, you know, the the past couple months here through this summer, we've been in the book of Nehemiah. And the whole theme of the book of Nehemiah has been rebuilding what's broken. And, I mean, death is one of the most broken places that we have, that, that we experience um, on this side of sin. Um, and since, as we see in the Bible, since Genesis chapter 3, when humanity fell into sin and death came into play, it's just been a reality that everyone's had to experience, that everyone has um, out in front of them, and um, that we all experience through the people around us who we know and love. And sometimes it can become this huge burden when we lose people, when we see people who are making bad choices, they're leading them on the path towards death, whether that's death, literal physical death, um, whether that's death of relationships, whether that's death of opportunities, whether that's death of whatever it may be. Um, we, we, we live in a world that is just uh, full of broken places, broken people, and um, <laughs> if we have any level of self-awareness, I think each and every one of us knows that we are one of those broken people, um, that we are a, a part very much of that brokenness in the world. And so how do we live in light of the brokenness that we find ourselves in? How do we not just kind of crawl up in a hole or become totally inward focused and take on the attitude of, well, I'm just going to go for broke every day because, like, might as well live it up because you never know when I'm going to die, right? You never know what's going to happen. Um, and Nehemiah has given us this contrast of what it looks like to live in, in one of two mindsets. And it gives us these two mindsets that people find themselves living in. And what we see is that the people of Israel, when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, is that they're living very entrenched and very ingrained in a certain mindset. And it's, it's the mindset of brokenness. 
and, and, and their mindset towards their lives is shaping everything about how they live their lives and how they see their future and even how they see themselves. When we take on brokenness as a lifestyle, when, when, we, when, we, when, when we just look around and we, and we throw our hands up and we give up and we give in to the brokenness, to the overwhelming weight of sin and the overwhelming, um, all the things that we're up against, when we just say, well, there's nothing I can do anyway, so why even try? We end up taking on this brokenness mindset. And it impacts the way that we think. It impacts the, the thoughts that run through our head and the, the, the tapes that play in our head on repeat throughout our day. When, when, we, get our, when we get to that place, when, when we find ourselves in the place of, of living in a lifestyle of brokenness, it just becomes this repeated thing that plays through our head. It impacts the way we think. It impacts the way that we act. The things that we choose to do and spend our time and our energy and our resources on. When, when, when we find ourselves in this lifestyle of brokenness, it impacts the way we think, the way we act. It impacts the way that we feel. As, as we live our lives and as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, it impacts the literal way that our, our emotions are going. And ultimately... When it's impacting the way that we think, the way that we act, and the way that we feel, it ends up defining who we are. This, this lifestyle of brokenness ends up defining who we are. Because as we look back and we see this, this track record of things that have, that have characterized our lives and things that we've done and the things that, the results of the, the, the things that we've done over our lives, we see that brokenness can end up defining who we are. And what I would say is, is, as we look at Nehemiah, we see clearly that the people, like I said, in Jerusalem, are living this lifestyle of brokenness. It's a people who, <clears throat> if, we, if, we, if we think back to where they're coming from, the people of Israel, that they, that they, they were brought out of the land of Egypt when they were slaves, that they were led out by, by Moses, in the book of Exodus, we see the story of that. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We see them being led towards this promised land that God had promised their forefathers. And we see God continuing to move toward them and continuing to bless them. And the people continuing to, to say one thing, like, like God, we, we, we want to follow you. But then continually their hearts are turned away from God. They're turned towards themselves. They're constantly trying to figure it out on their own. They're constantly trying to make their own way into the promises that God has given them. God says, here, here's the things I'm going to do for you. And they're like, no, we, we, we can't do that. And then, and then God's like, fine, okay, well, I'll keep wandering around the desert for 40 more years. Y'all are going to die. Then the people go, well, no, we're going to try and go into the land and take the land, try to conquer the people. And they get routed. They get destroyed in battle. And we see over and over again the people of Israel, even once they do get established into the land, we see them, their hearts turning away from God time after time after time. And eventually, the covenant that they've made with God has, has been broken so much that God enacts the things that he spelled out for them. When he said, listen, if, if you follow me, if you put me at the center of your lives, and what God did was he was trying to create this thriving community of people whose entire lives, entire community would be centered on him. That, that his life 
would be at the center of their lives. That, 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 that his goodness would be at the center of their community. That, that families and communities and, and, and tribes and, and the entire nation would gather together on a regular basis to worship God and to draw people towards God. And that people from, from around the world, from their surrounding nations, would see what was going on in Israel, that they would see how good they were to one another, that they would see how, how good they were towards the people who wanted to come in and worship God as well, and that they would be drawn to that because they would see the goodness of God through his people, and they would see the love of God and the grace of God through his people. And over and over again, the people rejected God, and so eventually they were carried off into captivity. Other nations came, destroyed the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And they were carried off into captivity. And the most notable story that we have from that is the book of Daniel. And you're probably familiar with the story of Daniel and the, uh, whether it's Daniel and the lion's den, we got Daniel, or Daniel's three friends who get thrown in the fiery furnace. Um, and you have these people who are choosing to continue to worship God in spite of the circumstances that they find themselves in. And in a completely pagan place, a place that, that, that is calling them to worship the king himself instead of God. And it's this remnant, these few people who are choosing to worship, continue to worship God. But by and large, the people at large are choosing this lifestyle of brokenness. And so even when God fulfills his promise that even after they're scattered among the nations, that he'll bring them back into the land that he's promised them. And God brings them back from the nations after 70 years and brings them back into Jerusalem, into this broken down city with this broken down temple. And God puts it in the hearts of, of, of leaders and people to rebuild the temple. And he brings the resources and the leadership and the, the, the um, motivation for everybody to come together and build the temple. And the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. And there's this great celebration. And the glory of God comes into the temple. And it's this place where God's presence resides on earth. And then we see the story of Nehemiah as we pick it up. And Nehemiah, he, he hears about how impoverished Jerusalem is because there's no protection, there's no wall around the city, the wall's broken down. And so his heart is broken and he, he goes towards his people and he prays and he lifts them up to God and God opens up the doors, opens up the resources, he opens up the authority and he opens up the opportunity for Nehemiah who's the cupbearer to the king in the capital of Susa. And the king grants Nehemiah everything that he needs. Gives him the keys to the kingdom to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah goes back. And we've seen over the past couple months this process of rebuilding and this process of, of overcoming challenges and overcoming the people who have come against Nehemiah to prevent them from being successful. And we see Nehemiah setting up this restoration lifestyle. That Nehemiah's heart is bent towards restoration. And that it shapes the way that Nehemiah thinks. It shapes the way that Nehemiah acts. It shapes the way that Nehemiah feels. And that restoration lifestyle, it shapes, it defines who Nehemiah is. And throughout this entire book of Nehemiah, we get to see this, this man, this person, lean into restoration and continue to not shy away from the brokenness. And he continues to move towards the people and, and, the, and the places that are broken down and the people who are broken. And he doesn't shy away even from the challenges when people are threatening his life when they come against him with violence, when they threaten to literally kill him, 
They invite him out. They try to entrap him. They, they, they threaten to spread rumors to the king about him. But Nehemiah, his faith is so deep in his God. His heart trusts God so dearly that he's unshaken by all these things. And he pushes forward towards the thing that God has opened the way for him to do. He doesn't allow himself to be derailed. You know, Nehemiah, as he continued to do that, we, we think about, man, what does it look like? What's the difference for us in living this, this lifestyle of brokenness versus this lifestyle of restoration? I've talked about this before, if you've heard me share before, is, is that I think it really comes down to this really simple thing. In a lifestyle of brokenness, our eyes are fixed on ourselves. Our heads are down, and we're looking at ourselves, and we're trying to figure out, how can I do this? How can I make it work? How can I make this happen? How can I figure this out? And it just leads us into this downward spiral. Because the depth of our sin is so much deeper than we even realize. And it, it, it taints so much more than we can even imagine in our lives and the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we feel and everything else. That when we look at ourselves for the solutions, we just go into this downward spiral that leads into anxiety, it leads into brokenness, it leads into, into death. But the beautiful thing is, is that when we lift up our eyes and we put them on Jesus, when we look at him, who is the way and the truth and the life, as Nehemiah did, it allows us to see things as they are. It allows us to see things for what they are. And the Holy Spirit allowed Nehemiah to see through the threats to see through the, the, the spreading of rumors, to see through the people who were coming at him from every different angle because he had his eyes fixed on his Father in heaven. Because his eyes weren't on himself to figure it out, but his eyes were up towards God and looking out towards the things that he saw around him and seeing the brokenness for what it was and that God's heart was broken about it and so was his and that God had a plan for Nehemiah to step into that brokenness and bring restoration, and he did. And we saw over the past weeks, we saw the wall get built, we saw the different things being restored. And here's the deal, it's like, man, here at Cold Springs Church, what we call this, we call this like this little but huge shift, okay? The shift from here to here. <laughs> it enables this thing that we call compassion with action. We talk about one of our values at Cold Springs Church is that we see, are moved by, and respond to the needy or broken world around us as the hands and feet of Jesus. We, bring, we respond with justice as the hands and feet of Jesus. Is that we step into that brokenness. We step into the needs of the world around us because we're not focused on ourselves, but we're looking up towards our Father in heaven. We're looking out towards the community around us, and we're moving towards those broken places, praying for God to open up doors for us to make a difference. 
And see, Nehemiah, before he left, before he left Jerusalem, he set up these rhythms. He set up a way for people to live in this restoration mindset. He, he actually built in lifestyle rhythms for people to step into that lifestyle of restoration. And we see in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. In Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 29, here's what it says. It says, um, actually, I'm going to start a little bit before that, uh, in, in verse 28. Okay? So basically, all the people are together, and they're making this covenant with God that now that the temple has been rebuilt, now that the wall is restored, and they've seen the faithfulness of God before their very eyes. They've experienced it in their own lives, personally, as he protected them from their enemies, as he brought the resources around them to do the impossible, and all these different things. And they're coming to God, all the heads of the, of the tribes and of the leaders of the nation of Israel at the time, of the people of Israel. They weren't really a nation at that point, a people. It says in verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, says join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our, of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So Nehemiah starts out setting up these rhythms of what it looks like to live the restoration lifestyle the restora in the restoration mindset, and it starts out with literally what, what is true? Answering the question of what is true. And what Nehemiah is saying is, listen, the thing that is true is what's in here. And the part of what's in here is our Old Testament that he's holding up, minus probably the book of Nehemiah, because they're enacted you're living it out. So he's holding it up and he's saying, if you want to know what's true, let's stop looking to ourselves to determine that, which is literally what caused people to fall into sin in the first place. Like, you can determine right and wrong. You can know what's right and wrong. You can be like God, determining right and wrong. And so when we tilt our heads down to ourselves and try and figure it out, it's the very definition of the sinful posture. And what Nehemiah is saying is, lift up your eyes, fix them on God, fix them on his word, delight in his word, delight yourselves in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. He says, join, join all these people, they join with their brothers, nobles, enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, in God's law. It was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So they're committing to live by God's truth and not their own truth saying, you know what, we're going we're to live by the truth as defined by God. The actual truth. Not what I say is true for myself. I don't, I, I'm not sure if there's anything more countercultural in this moment than that. We live in this culture and this society right now that says, you define what's right for you. You determine your reality. You determine your truth. You determine what's right. You determine what's wrong. And no one can tell you that you are wrong. The Bible says that's not true. God says, I've given you my word. I've given you the truth. Like I said before, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the absolute reality. He who was and he who is and he who is to come is the absolute truth that we can fix our eyes on and we can know that it is never going to change and it's never going to shift under our feet and it's never going to like transform into something else and we're never going to have to run after it to keep up and try to try try to stay on trend and try to stay on up with the latest whatever the deal is Jesus says I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me and the first element of living that lifestyle of restoration is living by God's truth and not my truth being willing to admit I don't know I'm not enough. Being able to evaluate my life and say, you know what? The longer I've lived like this, the further down the spiral that I've gone. And really the entire Old Testament, what we're going to see about the end of Nehemiah, which is really like Nehemiah chronologically, is the conclusion of the Old Testament. So as we come to the end of Nehemiah, we're going to come to the last words in the history of the people of Israel before a 400-year period of silence before Jesus came. And it's pretty depressing. Spoiler alert. It doesn't end with a celebration. It ends in the same place that it continues to end over and over and over again. It's this trending downward spiral looking towards the future, hoping for hope. So the first part is, is that, is, is living by God's truth and not my truth. The second thing that he sets up, the next verse, is that people need to pursue holiness, that they need to be set apart. They need to be a people of God. If they're going to be the people of God, they need to be the people of God. So verse 30 says this. It says, here's their part of their covenant. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And before we, like, go into the whole, like, well, that's, like, really, like, seems discriminatory and blah, blah, blah. Here's what that's about is that we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God warning about this, is that when... When God, who created his people to be centered in him, when, when they start marrying into other cultures and other societies outside of the people of God, that it draws them away from following God. That they start worshiping the things that their spouses worship. That their kids start getting raised in ways that are outside of the, the ways of God. That they don't worship God anymore. And it draws them away from following God. It draws them away from what should be at the center of their lives towards putting themselves at the center of their lives. And what we see in Israel is that there is a wide open door for anyone from any nation and any place in the world to come in to be a part of the people of God who want to worship God. In fact, it's so open that we see a woman named Rahab who's a prostitute in Jericho Who's, who's welcomed into the people of God, and not only welcomed into the people of God, but becomes, it's either great, great, or it's either one or two greats. She's either the great or great, great grandmother of King David. She doesn't just become a part of the people of God. She gets to, she's a part of the line of Jesus, of Christ. And then her, her daughter-in-law is another, another woman who marries, it, but, but, but it's because her heart is drawn towards God. And that she loves God and this woman, Ruth, we see just a couple of books before this in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth. And she marries this man named Boaz. And she becomes the grandmother 
or great-grandmother, one or the other, of King David. So God is welcoming people in, but at the heart of who they are has to be worshiping him. He's saying, listen, don't, <laughs> don't marry yourselves into families and into places where, 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 they're, where they're worshiping themselves, worshiping other things other than God. Because it leads to a less than thriving life. Here's what else he says in verse 31 in chapter 10. He says this, Another, another rhythm that they need to live in, to live that restoration lifestyle. He says, and if the peoples of the land bring in the uh, goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. See, God built this society where debt reset every seven years. And like, it's actually, yeah, it's pretty incredible. If you take the time to read through the laws in the Old Testament there, um, it's pretty amazing, the society that, that God set up. The, what he set up for how the people would live. They never actually lived it out, is the problem. So these people, they're committing to setting aside the seventh day that they're not going to go work, they're not going to buy and sell, they're not going to engage in commerce because they're going to trust that taking that day of rest from trying to provide for themselves and their families, they're not going to get so far behind that they're not going to be able to provide for themselves and their families. That they're trusting God to provide for them in the midst of that, and they're resting in the reality of who he is. So they're, they're protecting their God time. The fourth thing is, is that they're, they're committing to live generously by trusting God with their time and with their resources. It says this in verse 32. It says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give, a yearly, to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. And this part, I'm, I'm not going to read it all, but it goes on for the rest of the chapter. Lining out the, the sacrifices and the offerings that people are going to bring. And it talks about the first fruit of their crops, the firstborn of their cattle, that the, the, the they're going to hold open-handedly everything that God has blessed them with to be used for his kingdom. And God invites us all to step into that lifestyle, is that we would hold open-handedly everything that he has blessed us with to be, to be leveraged for his kingdom. And we get the privilege of stepping in to that place with him, that we get to hold open-handedly, not holding on tightly and, and inward-focused and like, no, this is mine, I have to preserve it, I need it so I can sustain, but instead trusting God that he's going to continue to provide and holding whatever he's given us open-handed and trusting him as we move forward. And that's what, that's what Nehemiah invites him into. And finally, he invites him to celebrate the wins. And in chapter 12, moving forward, they do that. It says that they, they, they have a huge party, that they come out and they're playing instruments along the wall as they, as they go around and celebrate and they dedicate the wall that's been built. And, and, and through all these things, this restoration mindset, this restoration lifestyle has led to this incredible thing being done by the hand of God. And, 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 and they celebrate it in a huge way. There's instruments, there's singing, there's celebration, there's feasting, there's all these different things, everything that makes a good party. You know, Jesus was accused of being like a, a glutton and a drunkard. Like, he was accused, he wasn't. But because he went and celebrated with people, people who were jealous of the freedom that he had 
accused him falsely. Jesus invites us to celebrate. When good things happen, look, the reality is we live in this broken world. We live in everywhere we look, we see more and more brokenness and more and more reasons to lose hope. When we see good things, we need to celebrate. We need to grab onto those. We need to share the good news with the people around us of the ways that God is working in this broken, fallen world, of the way that God's working in our own hearts and our lives, and the hearts and the lives of the people around us, and the hearts and the lives of our community and of our world. That's one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is, 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 is celebration. And really, like, we get to look forward to celebrating for eternity. Celebrating God and who he is and, 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 and all of his creation, which is going to be made new and be made right, that we're going to get to live in with God at the center, with Jesus at the center of creation. That's what we have to look forward to. That's where we put our hope. It's not in this dying world that's broken and falling, but, 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 it, but it's in the future world that's restored and made new is where we get to put our hope. And we need to celebrate when things go well. And, and they celebrated, sure, but then Nehemiah headed back to the capital of Susa, and when he returned, we're going to get a little glimpse here very quickly of, of how things had gone, how things went. So we have that restoration Lifestyle. We have that restoration mindset, those things that Nehemiah put into place, living by God's truth and not by their own truth, pursuing holiness, protecting the Sabbath, their God time, living generously by trusting God with their resources and their time. So Nehemiah, he comes back from Susa, from the capital. He asks for leave from the king so he can go check in and see how things are going in this beautiful new city that's been completed with the wall and the people who should be thriving in the middle of this city, worshiping God and, 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 and thriving and life just pouring out from the center of the city. And he comes back, and none of that's happening. The wall's still there. <laughs> but that's about it. It says in Nehemiah verse 10, he says, as he comes back, um, we're going to jump ahead of the first little section. We're going to tie back into that. But verse 10, he says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. The Levites are the ones who serve in the temple and keep the center, spiritual center of, of, of the people of Israel thriving. The very reason that they built the wall and built the temple was so that they could have this thriving spiritual center of the people of Israel so that they, their very identity as a people could, be, could thrive. And, and, and they're, they're not able to do that. It says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses. Shelemiah, like I said, names, what are you going to do? Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah the... Uh, of, of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, and the name Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was dis to distribute to their brothers. And here's what Nehemiah, this is the refrain for the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book of Nehemiah, is this. Listen to this. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. What Nehemiah has watched is a pattern of brokenness. He's watched this pattern of brokenness. He's, he's done everything he can to bring restoration. And what he's saying is, God, just remember, don't put this on me. 
I've done what I can, God. I've been faithful. I've, I've, walked, I've walked how you've called me to walk. I've done what you've called me to do. I didn't shy away. I confronted the people. I came and restored the things. And God, remember me. Remember me. He goes on. So we see that living generously, not happening. Verses 15 through 18. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing even more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. He goes on to talk about how he corrected that, but, but he, he ends with the same thing. He says, Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. In verse 22, Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Living generously, not happening. Protecting their God time, protecting the Sabbath, not happening. And finally, this is the, this is the other thing that's not happening. Remember that holiness thing? Back in verse 4, now before this, it says, Eliashib, the priest, who's the high priest, the, most, the, the, the highest spiritual authority in Jerusalem, it says, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. If you remember anything about the narrative of, of, of Nehemiah so far, Tobiah and Sambalat, there are two antagonists. They're the people who are evil who are trying to bring Nehemiah down. who are doing everything in their power to prevent this work of God from happening. They're the enemy of the people of Israel. The high priest has brought Tobiah... into a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, oil, which were given by commandment of the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So he took the chamber where all that stuff was supposed to go. This was supposed to be distributed to the, free, the Levites and the priests so they could do the, do the work of the temple and create the spiritual center. And Tobiah had taken up residence in there and kicked all that stuff out and been like, you know what? I'm the provision. No, seriously. He's like, hey, I'm, the, I'm, I'm here. It says, well, this was taking place. I was not in Jerusalem, Nehemiah says, for from the 22nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and for, um, after some time I asked for leave for the king. Okay, so he's saying, listen, I wasn't there. This is happening. And then toward the end, at the end of this whole section, verses 23 through 28, he says, in those days also I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, after... And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> he was serious, okay? Like, he's not just like, hey, you shouldn't do that. Like, like hey, man, like, don't do that anymore. Like, it was, it was like, you serious, okay? He says, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, even Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among, among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act, act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And here's the core of the rot. This is how deep that it went. It says, and even one of the sons, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who he was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite, the enemy of Israel, had married into the high, high priestly family. They joined their families together enemy of God and the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the people of God, joining their families together. This is where it ends up. Nehemiah says this. He says, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And I can just feel Nehemiah's heart breaking as the final words of the Old Testament are written or uttered in a prayer to God. He says, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood, uh, the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, forgive me. Old Testament over. That's the end. 400 years. People sat in silence, waiting for the next word, waiting for the word to come. 400 years later, one was born who was promised. The seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, the blessing that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 15, 18. The descendant who would sit on the throne of King David forever that was promised, first king. Second king. The one came. The one came 400 years later. 400 years of silence with that as the final word. It was easy to sit here and wonder about those people and point the finger at them and say, how could they? How could they again and again and again turn in towards themselves and turn away from God over and over and over again? How could that happen? How could they do that? But here's the heartbreaking reality is that when we examine ourselves is that time and time again as God continues to pour his blessing out on us, our eyes turn towards ourselves and we go, thanks God, I got it from here. I'm going to figure it out. And we start that spiral. And we start that lifestyle of brokenness. And the only thing that can pull us out is the Spirit of God. Because I have some bad news for you. I have some bad news for us this morning. Is this, is that you cannot do it on your own. You can't figure it out. You can't make it happen. The thing that affects your eternity, that affects your being alive or being dead, you cannot do on your own. 
It is only the Father in heaven who through his Son, Jesus Christ, who came and laid himself down. He said, true love has no one in this. It's someone who laid down his life for his friend, the one who laid himself down on our behalf. It's only through that sacrifice, through his death and resurrection that we have hope that we can find a way, the one who came 400 years later. The good news, to counter that bad news, is this, is that you are not on your own. You are not left on your own. It may feel like it, you may feel isolated, you may feel like you've been fighting this battle alone forever, but here's the truth, is that Jesus has entered into our reality He has won the victory over sin and over death, and he has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit that when we look on him, when we lift up our eyes and we see him for who he is and our hearts are drawn to him and we entrust our lives to him, is that he opens the way, that he is the one who brings restoration, he is the one that brings hope, and he is the one that brings life. And it is only in him, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, that we experience transformation, that we see things in in our own hearts and in our own lives and the lives of the people and the communities and the world around us where we see them transformed by his spirit. The life we were created for is the one with Jesus at the center. Just like God was trying to set up a community of people throughout the Old Testament, his people Israel with him at the center, the one that we're created to live is the one with Jesus at the center. And he invites us into that life. Just like Nehemiah was trying to create, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah from Ezra and Nehemiah, we're we're trying to create that physical space where people could worship and have God at the center of their lives. That space is now within us. That thriving life that God was building for his people is available to us by his spirit who lives within us when we trust him and trust him with our lives, when we respond in faith to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're given new life. And we're given new hope. We have the opportunity to start to walk in that spirit and live that lifestyle of restoration. But in order for us to do that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up because I just skipped the section that you're supposed to listen to for the end of to come up here. So... Here's what we're left to do. It's very simple. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. Admit, Jesus, I, I've tried. I've looked, I've searched for every way in myself. I've, 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 I've tried every avenue and I've, I've done everything I can and it just seems like the spiral keeps descending and I can't do it. I'm, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I need your help. We have to admit that, though. We have to fix our eyes on him and see him for who he is, believe he is the Son of God, that he has died for our sins and that he is coming again. We need to commit to following him as best we can. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. The section I skipped over was the Apostle Paul bemoaning the fact that as much as he's trying, he's not perfect. But that we fix our eyes on the future and the hope of glory when Jesus comes back. But now we get to live in this broken reality, but we strain towards that future as we mature in Christ. We don't give up. We live that lifestyle of restoration.
So our invitation to you this morning is say yes to Jesus for the first time maybe for you. But maybe that looks like saying yes to stepping with Jesus towards those broken places that you see around you. Stepping into those spaces and saying yes to a lifestyle of restoration. The beautiful thing is, is that we were created for this, this lifestyle of restoration. We were created for this, this lifestyle with Jesus at the center of being one with him. And this morning, we get the privilege of taking communion together. Communion, which celebrates that union that we have with Christ. So, um, I didn't grab one of the cups. Daniel, could you bring one of those up to me? <laughs> Here you go, you can have yours back. <laughs> so this morning as we, as we celebrate communion together, I want to invite you to you tear the little top cellophane thing off. First layer, we're going to take the bread out. being extra challenging so <laughs> this is what it is so Jesus came when he came on the last night he was with his disciples he took the bread he was sharing a meal with them just before he went to the cross and he took the, he took, he took the bread and he looked at them and he broke it and he said listen this is my body which is given for you eat this together and do it in remembrance of me so let's take the bread together they had taken the bread he took the cup he passed around he said this he said this is my blood which represents the new covenant drink this in remembrance of me let's drink it together would you pray with me Jesus again we thank you so much that you don't leave us here alone that this beautiful symbol that we just enjoyed together this bread this cup is symbolic of you coming towards us, laying yourself down for us, stepping into our brokenness to bring the victory over sin and over death for all of eternity. And your victory is sufficient even for the worst of sinners and for the most dead of dead people. Jesus, I pray that just as your heart was towards us, that our hearts would be towards you and towards one another. That you would give us your heart towards the brokenness in the world around us. You would break our heart as yours breaks for it, that we would move toward it as we walk with you into those broken places. Jesus, as we experience brokenness in our own lives, that we would know that you are in it with us. You're not on some other side of it waiting for us to emerge, but you are in the midst of it with us. Thank you for that. Thank you for laying yourself down for us and the great love that you have for us. Praise in your name. Amen.